Before we continue our worship through the preaching of God's word, I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you again for the privilege we have to meet. We thank you for the privilege that we have in your grace that you have lavished upon us, that we may be called sons and daughters of the one true God. How merciful you are to us. This morning we come, though, Father, to um, lay before you our heart's desire to, to know you intimately. We know that our sin, our frailty, our a proneness to wander is uh, still an offense to you, even though we are in uh, the covenant bonds of Christ as your children. Our sin separates us from that intimacy. And it's uh, damaging and harmful to our, to our Christian walk, our Christian witness, to our love for one another, our bond in Christ. And so we come to confess this morning lay ourselves uh, before you that you might um, cleanse us and strengthen us. Grant us capacity to, to know you more fully and to walk in righteousness. Fill us with boldness and strength and wisdom. Teach us from your word and hear our hearts as we confess to you, knowing that it's good for us, that we might um, be cleansed and uh, Join to you anew and, and um, that we might have greater intimacy and relationship with you, our God. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I invite you to join me again in the book of Acts. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 21, and we're going to tackle the verse 17 all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 40. This really doesn't break up well, this, this narrative here as we come to the end of chapter 21. Uh, the title of this morning's message is Paul, the Relentless Apostle, Part 3. So we're still driving at that theme, at that reality, at that beautiful work of God in his apostle of Christ here, the Apostle Paul, of that relentless, dogged um, uh, uh, desire within Paul that moves him that makes him consistent in all his calling that God has laid upon him, that he is relentless and dogged in his ministry calling, whatever the circumstances. And here he is given to us, again, in a running narrative in space and time, uh, as we see kind of the church, the early church there unfolding for us. Um, we have this witness of this, of this apostle who is dogged and determined to, see his way through God's call upon his life, regardless of the circumstances. So it's a great encouragement for us. And again, we talked about uh, boldness this morning, and certainly Paul embodies boldness, and we'll see that as part of his makeup, part of his uh, reality as a follower of Jesus Christ, fully aware of his calling and fully determined in the power of Christ by the power of the indwelling spirit to see it through to the very end. And so let's just look at it this morning, and I'm going to read just, uh, we'll read it through, and then we'll work through a couple sections there as we take up this uh, kind of bulky portion of the narrative here at the end of chapter 21. So begin, uh, look with you there, beginning in verse 17. It says, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. 
And the following day, Paul went in with us to James. Now that uh, Paul went in with us, that's, um, that's Luke talking, okay? So now Luke's joining them back up here. So uh, just, to, just to make sure that makes sense to you. So they went into James there in verse 18. And they saw James and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will be known that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk according uh, orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles, we have we have believed. We wrote having, uh, excuse me, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took them in, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice uh, uh, of the completion of the days of the purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and lay hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preached to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has, and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Theropimus, the Ephesian, uh, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort, and all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw uh, the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and began asking uh, who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. Uh, for the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought to the, uh, into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up the revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus, of Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And he had given him permission, 
Paul standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a hush, when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in Hebrew dialect, saying, what he said will hold, Lord willing, till next time. But let's look at the event now leading up to Paul being, if you will, seized. And remember, the prophecy being fulfilled. Now, uh, line by line, precept by precept, not exactly in detail, because we don't see uh, the, the Jews really seizing Paul and handing him over, so to speak, like maybe that might have seemed if it was line by line in terms of the prophecy. But what we do see is a prophecy fulfilled. Paul will be bound. It's really the, the Romans that will bind him. But the Jews are the reason for this. And the, the Romans intervene and take him away from being killed by the Jewish mob. But the Jewish uh, uprising there and, and the chaos that ensued over Paul is really what led to him being in the hands of the Romans. And so we see the prophecy fulfilled right here. He's going to be seized uh, just as was prophesied. And we certainly see the reality of the persecution taking place here. But by way of reminder, we know that Paul had his face set on Jerusalem. He, under, he understood this was God's call on his life, and he was going to see it through. He was sure of the divine guidance here, and he was resolute to see his way through to Jerusalem. Now, he had his delegate with him, but also with him uh, now there's, there's been some brothers from Caesarea that's come along with him as well. So they're all there as representatives of the churches in the Gentile world that have been founded really under Paul's ministry as apostle to the Gentiles. So now this uh, now probably rather sizable band uh, of followers here, a lot Jew or uh, some Jewish and, and um, the large number of them Gentile believers have now made their way into Jerusalem. And they're going to come before the leadership of the, of the Jerusalem church. And what are they going to do? Why are they there? They're going to offer up their monetary gift, right? Monetary gift that they've collected from all the churches and, and some representatives there with them to try to give to aid uh, the, the Jewish church there in Jerusalem and to build that bond between the Jewish uh, populace there and the Gentile populace that now both have in common Christ. Now, are there still some barriers? Are there still some uh, some traditional gaps to, to, to fill in? Are there still some issues? Yes. Yes, and so we're going to look at some of that this morning. But they've made the journey. And now here we're going to see them deliver over this monetary gift to the, the Jewish church from all the Gentile churches that have now been planted and started. And that now there's this Christian representative and representation of the Gentile world coming to offer this love gift, if you will, this offering that has a very practical uh, uh, aspects to it, but also this desire to see the church unified, to build those bonds of peace, to work on tearing down some of those traditional walls that, that, that stand in terms of culture in terms of religion. And now we're looking at the reality behind this is the real saving work of Christ among the nations. 
And now you're seeing real sinners saved by grace, brought together with all their warts and all their injuries and all their baggage. I'm going to see these things begin to work out where Christ reigns supreme in his church and culture and ethnicity and location does not trump his grace. So we're going to see all of this start to take place and work out. And this is the flashpoint. But in the middle of that is Paul's Paul's calling, God's call upon his life, and a prophecy being fulfilled here that God, excuse me, that Paul is going to face persecution. The Jewish population is going to seize him, which is, in fact, what does happen. And then he's going to be handed over to the Romans. Now, the Romans come and intervene, but still we find him in Roman hands. And so we see this prophecy fulfilled concerning Paul's ministry here as well. So there's the larger context here. Now, they've made it back for Pentecost. This is in A.D. 57. So we could track that. This was an easy one to track. And so just to give you the timeline, it's A.D. 57 when all this takes place. And they've made it back to Pentecost. Now, they're going to have a warm reception from the church. They're excited about this. But as we see them being excited, come on in, buddy. As we see them being excited about this, also I want to kind of lay a little background for you here so we can follow what's going on. All right. Paul and his uh, cohorts are coming in and they give report. And there's excitement. But there's some factions here that we have to kind of have in the back of our mind as we follow this narrative. Now, most of the Christians there in the Christian church, and there's thousands of them at this point, and the leadership, that's, that's falling upon James now and a number of elders. We don't know for sure, but some said that there's been uh, commentators that have said possibly uh, hundreds by now or over 100 elders at this point. There's thousands of believers here, and many of them have been dispersed. So there's more believers that have come to Christ in Jerusalem. So you have a massive church there, even after dispersion. There's lots of followers of Christ in Jerusalem now. And Paul, uh, excuse me, James is kind of head man, and we have a number of elders. And so they're excited about Paul and the Gentile representation coming in. And so they give report and everybody's rejoicing. But in this reality, there is there are some genuine Jewish Christians that are not fully convinced concerning Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. And they've been influenced. Now, who do you think is still in Jerusalem that has influenced them? Now, certainly there's the Jewish leadership there. That is in, in dyna, dy, uh, dynamic opposition to these Jewish believers. They're calling them apostates. So you still have the Jewish leadership that is opposed to, uh, that does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And they are opposed to all the Jewish Christians there. They're still running the show in Jerusalem. But there's another group that professes to be followers of Christ that's still hanging around Jerusalem. Now, who is that? Do you remember? Who did Paul have trouble with in Galatians? The book of Galatians. 
We see Paul start out pretty strong with some pretty strong language there. Who's he addressing? In the book of Galatians. Remember? The Judaizers. You remember the Judaizers? Okay, the Judaizers still have a presence in Jerusalem. And they're in the ear of these uh, young Christians. And so they're having great influence on a number of them. Saying, you know, this Paul, he's bad news. He's teaching things contrary to the law. And so you have an element there that's opposed to Paul as we see him enter into town. So hold that in mind. And think about the beautiful picture there as they come in and they, and they lay down this offering and the joyous report they give. But hold that in the background because things can change quickly, right? I know a family um, that has had some change, things change quickly on them concerning travel overseas. So it can turn quickly. I remember Mark was just saying to us a moment ago in our morning study that uh, God has laid our circumstances out for us. Our circumstances can change quickly. But God has laid them out according to his sovereign will for his own glory and for our good. So we must hold that in mind because, man, it can turn on a dime. And all of that's in God's hands. So you're going to see this start really well. And it goes south. It goes sideways quickly. But God is complete control of the circumstances. So just let's just look at the report there in verses 17 through 20. So again, uh, they arrive in Jerusalem. They're there at Pentecost. And the brethren received them gladly there in verse 17. And the following day, Paul went up with them, uh, his band of brothers there, representing the Gentile world. They went to see James. They went to see James and the elders. Now, again, there's a large number of elders with James, and James has kind of emerged there as a primary leader uh, there in, Jer- in the Jerusalem church. So after he had greeted them there in verse 19, he began to relate to them one by one. This is Paul relating to the James and the other elders. One by one, the things in which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he's telling them all the glorious stuff, all the wonderful work of salvation that God has done among the Gentiles, out of the Gentile world, how the gospel has gone forth, how the very thing we started looking at Acts, the very first chapter, how we see that reality now being fleshed out in space and time. Everything that was that was spoken of there in chapter one, we see those concentric circles. Now they, they're, they, we see the reality of going out into the Gentile world, the nations. Now Paul has come full circle, three ministries. You're looking at a decade here. And he's back here giving this love offering from other brothers and sisters outside the covenant community of, of Jerusalem. But now in the covenant bonds of Christ with these brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And now we have this unity in Christ and these people from the nation all gathering here. Uh, for the most part, this band represented, but still the Gentiles represented here with Jewish believers in this love offering given. And they're all rejoicing. And Paul's just detailing every step of the way to them and they're eating it up. They're loving it. And I'm sure he tells of uh, the stalking all the way through with the Jewish leadership, how they pursued him, 
all the way through. I'm sure he, he tells uh, uh, of all the hardships, but nonetheless, they all pale in comparison to the glory of the gospel that goes forth to the Gentiles. Knowing that God is sovereign all the way through the details of the journey, the ups and the downs, the difficulties and the beauty of God's working out salvation in the midst of all the obstacles that have come their way. And they're just relaying it to them. And you can, you can imagine the joy and elation uh, as, the, as they, uh, Paul walks them through this reality. And then they say back, uh, they're in verse 20. So you see, brother, and they say back to Paul, man, that is glorious. But you see how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they're zealous for the law. Now, there's, there's a little marker for us right there. So, that, so now they're saying, God has done a glorious work here as well among the, the Jewish population. Thousands have come to Christ, and they're zealous for the law. Now, I want to stop right here and pause for a moment. That's going to be important for us. That's not bad, okay? We're talking about what's going to be at issue here primarily is the ceremonial laws. And it's not bad, all right? Paul, just prior to this, a couple years prior, has taken what? A Nazarite vow, did he not? We talked about that. Now, again, traditions die hard. I, I, I believe at that point, Paul was fully free in Christ. But for Paul, he felt he could follow through on that ceremonial law as a, as a Jewish believer in Christ and that it would... Uh, and in that, he could have he could gain great intimacy with his Savior and fulfilling that. And he chose to do that. And there still could have been a hangover uh, of tradition for Paul. Uh, again, th- that takes some time. But Paul was compelled to do that. I don't know all the reasonings for it, but we know that he was. And he followed through. And I'm sure in that, Paul felt a great sense of intimacy with Christ because all that was pictured in the Nazarite vow was fulfilled in his heart. Now, what he was not doing was hanging on to the Nazarite vow for salvation. Got it? So what makes these brothers different? Let's just try to to maybe tie this down right here. What makes some of these brothers here in Jerusalem that are concerned about Paul? And they're still zealous for the law. They're still practicing ceremonies. And that's, Paul knows it's going to die a death. That's going to die a quick or slow death. Slow. Now, what are we, what are all believers need to do right here with our traditions and our struggle? And this is, this one's deep. And this one's unique because it pictures everything that's true in their heart. Isn't that glorious? And all of a sudden now they know exactly what that's pointing to. But there's a fine line there for having that to be necessary, right? They can still practice. Certainly, they can still circumcise their children. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But what can't happen? Here's the difference between the Judaizers and these brothers right here that are, that are working their way through this and trying to deal with Paul and understand what's going on. And some of them having some struggle with Paul or at least some accusations that have come against Paul. 
What the Judaizers say about circumcision? And Paul faced them down and said, no. And Paul can still go back and take an Ezraite vow and follow it through. Although we might, you know, we might just uh, cringe that a little bit, but it's not necessary. Paul could participate in ceremony. They're going, that's going to happen in Jerusalem for a time. That's going to die a slow death. And Paul has every freedom in Christ. He's willing to do this. But what does he say cannot happen? Where did he face down the Judaizers? Let's nail this down up front for, for, as, as we say. What did he say could not happen? What were the Judaizers pushing? Circumcision had to happen to the Gentiles. Why? Paul said, no. Salvation. Salvation. There it is. And Paul draws a line in the sand there. No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, the Gentiles, they don't need any of the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law can't be pressed upon them, should not be pressed upon them. Any of it. Now, the Jewish community, you've got a different element. Can we give some grace there and be lenient and still have some people working and working their way through the ceremonial laws? Sure. But is it ever to be viewed as necessary for salvation? No, that's where we draw the line. So here's Paul's position. Grace, great grace. Ceremonial laws need not be imposed upon the Gentiles. That's not their access to Christ. They can learn the pictures. They can see the beauty. We can still take the the texture and see the beauty of the, uh, of the pointing to Christ from the ceremonial law, but it need not be imposed on them. Jewish brothers and sisters that have, that have been, ha- that, that have this just ingrained in their upbringing, ingrained in their daily routine of life. Can they still participate in the ceremonial law and be fathers of Christ? Yes. Can they still circumcise their children? Yes. What do they have to learn? It cannot be mandated as necessary for salvation. Can they still see the pictures and the beauty and still work their way through some of that? Yes, it's necessary to work your way through it from their context. But it must not be seen as necessary for salvation. Okay? So that's where where Paul is going to take his stand. Now, they rejoice there, and they're zealous for the law. And I want you to see, I, I, I try to give you all that up front to see this, that Paul's not bothered by that. Paul's okay with them being zealous for the law. And again, we're talking about ceremony here. He understands that's, that's the long game. And he's not, he's not eating up over that. He's rejoicing over real, genuine salvation. So think about this. Okay, because we could get that could kind of hit us here and, and where we're coming from, from, uh, you know, our point looking way back, all of us primarily being from a Gentile world brought up in Gentile communities. We look at this and we and we it's hard for us to, to see Paul as being good with that. He's he's in a transition. He's in a time frame. And Paul is full of wisdom and grace. And it's OK for them to work their way through this. All along the way, understanding that it cannot be necessary for salvation. Beautiful picture. 
work through the practice, not necessary for salvation. But look what he does here. Could you imagine? So what I'm saying is don't, don't get held up there than being zealous on loss. Because I want you to see what Paul sees here. They're conveying to him that thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem have been have come to Christ. God has ransomed thousands of the Jewish uh, community from death to life out of being bound to the ceremonial law for a hope of working their way to God, to being rescued from their own frailty and sinfulness and in ineptness and inability to work their way to God's favor and given the Messiah that was promised to them now in the salvation of their hearts, ransomed to God through Christ. And Paul is elated. He's not in the least bit concerned about them being zealous for the law in terms of knowing what has happened in their lives that God has rescued them, ransomed them in Christ. Listen to Paul's language. He's ecstatic. Listen to what Paul says there in Romans. He wrote this sometime prior before getting to this point in Jerusalem. Listen to the language he gives there in Romans. Romans 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is uh, for, the, uh, for them, that being uh, the Jewish community, is for their salvation. He had a passionate heart to see his uh, kinsmen come to Christ. So he's elated here. Romans 9.3. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Now he's talking about his ethnic brethren, the Jewish uh, population. My kinsmen, according to the flesh. So there's Paul's heart. He longs to see uh, uh, these Jewish people, his Jewish kinsmen come to Christ. And now he's seeing it. Now he's back with all these Gentiles uh, speaking about the glorious work that God has done out in the Gentile world. And he hears this beautiful reality of now these thousands of Jewish people that God has saved in Christ. So Paul's elated here. Now, this community may not have as much freedom and maturity as their leaders. Certainly not as much freedom and maturity as Paul. And also, they've had some influence by the Judaizers. The Judaizers have, have um, they've stirred up a lot of trouble. And they're in Jerusalem. So that's the context. But there's the report, and it's a glorious report. But just check that off in the report. They are zealous for the law. Now I want to bring you to the accusation there in verses 21 and 22. So the religious or the leaders there of the Jerusalem church continue on and say they, that being uh, some of these new converts, these Jewish converts to Christ, they have been told about you, Paul, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Now, Paul may very well have encouraged some Jewish believers living, Hellenistic Jews living in the Gentile world to, to uh, you know, to, to start to, to wane off some of the ceremonial laws in terms of uh, certainly they're trying to push them on Gentiles. He would say no. If they're working their way to them, they're still practicing and Paul's not going to hassle them. But you may have encouraged them, look, you know, hey, don't push this on the Gentiles. 
And for you, work your way through this. But what he did not say, what he was accused of here, and never do we have any evidence of him saying that uh, these Gentile, or excuse me, these uh, Hellenistic Jews were to not circumcise their children. So we have no record of Paul saying anything like that. So this is an accusation. Are accusations uh, healthy or dangerous? In general terms, they're dangerous. But this is what, this is what, this is just the word out on the street now. So this is what's been, uh, Paul's been accused of here. Verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. So everybody, they're going to know you're here. So what are we supposed to do about this, Paul? Now, this is what's been said about you. No validity to it. Nothing in Paul's ministry that, that, that we see where Paul does anything of a lot. Nothing. It's an accusation. It's all it takes. One accusation, one false accusation. Drag your name through the mud. It's all it takes. So what are we to do? Well, there's a charge here of apostasy, really. That's where they're driving. Because they're saying that he's teaching against Moses. Do you see that? Now they've, they've, they've kind of uh, taken circumcision, and that, that's, that's the way they're using to drive this. But they're saying, here Paul is teaching against the law of Moses. Is Paul doing any such thing? Has he ever taught against the law of Moses? Of course not. All Paul has ever done is taken the law of Moses and say, Jesus Christ is your promised Messiah. He is the one that has fulfilled the law of Moses. He's gone to the Gentile world, and he said to them, there is, your, there is a creator God over all mankind. That creator God has come down and wrapped himself in flesh via the Jewish community, whom God has made covenant with for the purpose of bringing the Messiah to the nations. That Messiah has fulfilled the covenant law of Israel. And actuated by creator God, extended out to the Gentile world. Here is your promised savior in total fulfillment of God's covenant law with Old Testament geopolitical Israel. Here he is. It's Jesus Christ. Paul has never taught in opposition to the law of Moses. He has only taught the fulfillment of the law of Moses in the person and work of Jesus Christ to the Jewish community and to the world at large. Here's your Savior. So there's a false accusation here. It's a distortion of truth. Now, James, the elders don't believe this, but some do. So there's the rub. And they're saying, look, something needs to be done here to address this issue. Now, Paul never demanded that Jewish Christians must com uh, uh, completely cease uh, from, Torah, from the Torah observances. He never did. Paul had the big picture in mind. I think he fully understood here. There's some time needed here for all this to work out. But what Paul could do was distinguish between essentials and non-essentials. And Paul was great at that. And we can learn from Paul. Man, because can we too, in our current context, get hung up on non-essentials, on non-essentials? Can we do that as a body of Christ to our detriment? We can. My goodness. Uh, hello, 
King James onlyism. Hello. Can we? We can. Man, we can get hung up. I mean, modesty is a beautiful thing. We need it. We need to love it. We need to cherish it. We need to teach it. But my goodness, can we get hung up on legalistic issues concerning modesty? We can. And the list goes on. So, oh, that we would learn a lesson from Paul here. Pray that you, that God would give you the grace to be able to distinguish between essentials and non-essentials concerning the gospel. How we desperately need that. Man, we can get hung up and our ministry that God has given us and called us to can drag down to a screeching halt because of our being hung up over non-essentials. Hang on to the gospel with your eye teeth and see your way through. Beg God to give you wisdom and clarity. Do not allow yourself to get hung up on non-essentials. You center yourself on the gospel, ground yourself on the gospel, and exercise tremendous grace towards one another and the lost world around you. And that's what we're going to see with Paul. He is going to exercise tremendous grace towards other brothers and sisters, towards those who have accused him falsely, and towards those who have taken him into custody, unbeknownst to what reason. You're going to see a man exercise great grace here, and you're going to see a man centered dead square on the gospel. He just never wavers, no matter the circumstance. Paul never wavers. But here's the accusation, and Paul's patient with them. He's patient with these Jewish believers, and he understands that they're working their way through the customs and the ceremonial laws. But what I want you to see is what Paul sees. He sees the beauty of the gospel and works towards enjoying freedom, complete freedom in the gospel, okay? That's what Paul has and holds. He has. He held it when he was taking a Nazarite vow. Fully uh, see it and Paul fully believe it. He was compelled to do it, and he was free to do it. He didn't have a problem with it. He's not going to have a problem with this. there, There are some that would say, man, Paul was way out of bounds here. He disobeyed God. He should have never been in Jerusalem. Uh, and here's the evidence. And Paul is completely capitulating and, and almost folding up on the gospel. And for all that's within me, I don't see it. I believe Paul is well within his bounds here. And he's going to follow through uh, out of grace and kindness. It's going to be a very gracious act. Uh, and it's going to help do much there in Jerusalem concerning his ministry and uh, and God's work among the Gentiles through Paul, his apostle. Well, what I see in Paul is this great enjoyment of his freedom, and he longs to see that in others. So where you have freedom, enjoy it. And where you have that joy, pray that that would be true for others and that that would give you uh, the, the passion to be gracious towards them. Where you can see things coming a mile away and you have brothers and sisters that can't see it right in front of their face, be gracious towards them. Be encouraging. Have those conversations. uh, Be compelling to them. Pray for them. But be gracious and guard your hearts against falling prey to laying hold of non-essentials and letting them bury your ministry. Okay? It's an ongoing work. Be free, be free like Paul and pray for others to be likewise and be patient. Be patient with one another as we walk with faith together.
So Paul could appreciate the ceremonies, again, but not insisting that they are necessary. That's the difference. James and leaders agreed with Paul. They wanted to affirm uh, this, the, the work that he'd done among the Gentiles. But there's, there's a rub here, so they've got to get to it. So they wanted to continue to reach out to uh, the Jewish contingency there in Jerusalem, right? So there's, there's, there's a way they want to try to approach this. They're going to lay this out for Paul, and Paul's not going to have an issue with this, okay? So they have a problem here. They see it. They, they want to celebrate what's happening in the Gentile world, and they want to be careful with the volatile uh, circumstance there in Jerusalem. So they're trying to work their way through this. So I want Paul to make sure that all understand that the Gentiles' road to Jesus does not come through the temple or the synagogue. Paul will make that stand. He'll, he'll sink his eye teeth in there and make that stand. And the issues that are going on with the Jewish, Jewish community, the Jewish Christians, he's gracious and he's patient and he'll let these things play themselves out. So for us, again, let me encourage you to take the very same approach. Listen to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 32 through 33. Give no offense to either Jew or to Greeks or to the church of God. Now, this is, this is kind of Paul's playbook right here. Give offense to neither the Jews or Greeks nor the church of God, just as I also uh, please all men in all things, not seeking my own prophet, but the prophet of the many, so that they may be saved. You let that be your heart's desire, just like Paul. Don't offend anyone. Be gracious. Be patient. Go walk that extra mile with people that are bogged down in legalism. Just walk that extra mile with them. Spend time with these folks. Be patient with these folks. You got brothers and sisters that are caught up in stuff and they're just bound by some things that you know are non-essentials. Don't beat them over the head with it. Be patient with them. Don't offend them. Be patient with your lost friends around you. Be gracious. Striving to live a life exemplary before them and striving to see them saved. So don't offend them. Now it brings us to the, uh, the solution here. Well, what the leaders come up with there in Jerusalem church, what they want Paul to do. Well, look with there in verse 23 through 26. So here's their solution. Um, could they have come up with a better one? Maybe, but this is what they came up with. But I want you to see how Paul responds. Because Paul's gotten some heat for this down through the ages. But he just never flinches here. I want you to say that Paul never flinches. Verse 23. Therefore, do this that we tell you. So here's what we're going to have you do, Paul. Now, again, this is the, the Jewish leadership there of the church. We have four men who are under a vow. So what I want you to do is take them and purify yourself. So he's coming back into Jerusalem. After being out into the Gentile world, he's going to go back into the temple. So you've been outside of Jerusalem and you're going back in the temple. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a need for purification. So that's what we're dealing with with the purification of Paul. To so say purify yourself is because he's been outside coming back in. He's going to enter the temple. So that's all he's doing for his self-purification. The rest of the, uh, of the ceremony has to do with these four men. And he's just going to participate in it with them. So purify yourself. And go with them and pay their expense. So for them to take the Nazarite vow, they also have to offer, offer sacrifices. So most likely, 
The payment is for the sacrifice. That can be costly at times. So this is a gracious act by Paul. So he's purifying himself so he can go in with them, and he's going to pay for, for their sacrifice of these men so that they can go on and shave their heads. Uh, and again, it says this needs to be happening at a timely manner here what's going on at Pentecost. And all will be known that there is nothing to the things which that has been uh, told about you. So if you, if you do this, that's going to make, uh, that's going to gain us a lot of ground with these folks that have heard these salacious accusations about you. Now, again, the Jewish leadership doesn't believe them, but they know some do. And some of them are genuine, professing Jewish Christians that are not as far down the road in their faith as Paul. Keep that in mind. To do this, and then they won't have doubts about you. As a matter of fact, in verse 24, they'll know that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. Now, that's, that's what we call a lot of people. Like, Wait a minute, keeping the law. Paul's okay. To practice some ceremony, he's okay. Is he working some stuff out himself still? Maybe. Again, Paul's seeing a beauty here that maybe some of them are not quite to yet, but he's okay with this. He's not coming in and saying, you must put away the ceremonial laws in order to be a Jewish Christian. He doesn't say that. Isn't that gracious? Isn't that glorious? Matter of fact, Paul says, you know, there's some good, and you see this the right way, there's some good, but you can't be bound by it. You can't make it necessary. But he's willing to walk with them through this. And trust me, he's taken much heat over the years. But you know what? Um, Paul just doesn't care. He's worried about the gospel. He's worried about genuine salvation. He's worried about the souls of men and women around him. And he's willing to go the extra mile with them. Verse 25. But concerning the Gentiles uh, who have believed. Now, this again is the the, uh, uh, James and and the elders talking to Paul and his cohorts. Now, concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. So basically, I say back to Paul, look, as far as the Gentiles go, we think we've done pretty much, we think we've, we've kind of answered that. We've, we've dealt with that. You know, we met the Jerusalem Council. You remember that? We met and we said, okay, this is all we're going to require out of you. At least do this. You know, in other words, keep yourself from idolatry. Don't go eat at the table of idol offerings. Stay, you know, stop the fornicating. Do these things. So they said, we're not, we didn't slap a lot of ceremonial regulations on them. We haven't done that. We've given them what we uh, believe is the minimum to walk as followers of Christ in a Gentile context. So they're saying to Paul, look, we think we've been reasonable there. Let's all agree. So let's work on these Jewish believers here. And Paul is willing. Then Paul took them in, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So Paul follows through. Now, again, he took the four of them in there. And it's not as a means of merit before God, but it's an outward visible sign of thanksgiving to God for answered prayer. 
Paul has begged God for years to save men and women from the Jewish community. And he's come back in Jerusalem and heard this great report of the saving work that God has done. And now there's this issue. And Paul is happy to graciously go in and pay for the sacrifice for these men, follow through with them, and give the appearance to those who are concerned and have heard false accusations about him. And if the leadership there feels like this is a way that he could kind of squelch some of that, he's happy to do it. And Paul has no way intending on compromising the gospel at all. It's the last thing on his mind. Seeing people come to Christ out of all contexts and work their through, way through all the baggage and see that God work them out of all their baggage and the freedom in Christ. Is he about that? Yes, he is. And he'll go to great lengths to see it through. So he walks with them and he goes with them into the temple. 1 Corinthians 9, 22-23. To the weak, I became weak. Of course, this is Paul speaking of himself and his ministry. And I would say for us, Uh, May we do likewise. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now that last sentence there should really stir our hearts. I want you to, let me read that to you again. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Now there, if that can be, that's a prayer request for word of grace. We have a corporate prayer request right there that God would take us one by one and begin to work through us, work our way out of all our baggage that we still all have and begin to do all things for the sake of the gospel. Why? so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. As we are lining ourselves up with it, rather than the legalism that binds it, then we begin to see ourselves as partakers of it with one another. But that leads us to the hostility. So Paul is following through, and it gets him in trouble. So look there in verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, now that's surely from Ephesus, okay? He spent the most time there, and he had, and they, they tracked him down. They chased him all the way down to Ephesus, and they, they went after him. So he had major issues there in Ephesus. We, we worked through all that. They're surely from Ephesus, and they have they, they hounded Paul all over uh, Asia and Europe. So now they're back. He's Pentecost. They're back in Jerusalem. And they would know that they could spot him a mile away. They see him. And it's on. It is on. Once they see him, they lay eyes on him. And they're like, oh, uh, now's the time. So they see him in the temple. And they begin to stir up all the crowd. And they lay hands on him. So go after him immediately. There's no trial. There's, there's nothing. They just go right after him. They've been trying to get him for a long time. Here's their opportunity. They go right for him. And they cry out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is a man who preached to all men everywhere against our people and against the law in this place. Besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, that is also not true. 
That's a false accusation. Verse 29 tells us that. For they had previously seen uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him and supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So Paul was just in his company. And they take that reality and say, well, you know what he did? He brought this Greek into the temple. And he's been preaching against the law of Moses uh, all over the place. And we got we to gotta kill this guy. So verse 30 says, then all the city was provoked and the people rushed together, taking hold of Paul and dragging him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now, it doesn't take much to stir up a crowd, does it? That was quick, wasn't it? Did Paul's circumstances, circumstances change on a dime? Yes, they did. You can stir up a crowd quick. And mob, man, mob mentality uh, reasons through things, right? I mean, it's, it's all calculated. No. What have we seen in our current climate, in our culture? You want to push stuff? You want to make, you want to get things stirred up? You want to start something in a hurry? And push an agenda, right or wrong, you rile up the crowd. You get a mob mentality. And that's what they've stirred up here. So now they've got a mob worked up. And they've made these accusations and they just and, and they've uh, they come into the they come into the temple and they drag him out. And notice there, immediately the doors are shut. They're gonna kill him. And so you have the leaders of the temple there, happy to just, they don't mind if they murder somebody, but don't defile the temple grounds. So they drag him out and bam, shut the door. No trial, no justice, just mob violence. Now here's the beauty of our sovereign God. This is prophesied. God has told Paul all along the way this is going to happen. And now God will take an unjust mob of religious Jews and a very organized Roman overseers who have their problems with justice, but yet a very clear-cut systematic justice uh, uh, system. And so God uses both ends here to bring about his sovereign will. And neither one of them know a thing about it. They're all working out. They're both working out God's sovereign plan. This mob and these uh, uh, Roman overlords are now the commander here ruling under these Roman overlords are both now kind of just streams in the hand of a sovereign God working out this process. So it's consummate in to God's glory. So here are these two pawns on the chessboard of God's sovereign plan for Paul's life. And they're just being played by a holy God. And they have no clue. But so you have these two dynamic opposite entities here working together, if you will, unbeknownst to themselves to bring about God's sovereign will here. But enters the commander of the Roman cohort. And there's a lot of soldiers. It says that... Um, uh, there, verse 32, once uh, he was looking, he, he took along with him some soldiers, and it says centurions too. So centurions are commanders of how many? A hundred. right? So he got some, he's got centurions with him. So uh, he's got some backup here. 
This is not, he didn't grab a handful of soldiers and, and rush into the square, Temple Square, no. So he's quickly active. It's been active. It's been systematic. This is, a, this is an excellent commander, and he's going to nip this thing in the bud quickly, and he's going to have enough uh, um, manpower there to do it. So once they saw this in verse 32, they stopped beating Paul. So they saw the Romans come in, and then they pull, they pull back. Right. So the man who came and he took hold of Paul and he says he has him bound. He bound in chains. Now, that's, again, very specific prophecy being fulfilled right there. So he's bound with chains. And he began to ask him there in verse 33 who he was and what he had done. So he's trying to find out what's going on here. Now, Paul's been shut out of the temple. And, and that's possibly, a, a I don't want to stretch it here, but possibly a good illustration of the reality of the temple. No longer being a place where we receive God's grace, but God's grace is now supremely manifest and available in Christ alone. So you see a very interesting little shutting out of the temple there. Here's Paul, God's man, closed out. You know, hey, just leave us to our ceremonies. Don't, don't, not a drop of blood on the ceremonial ground here, but uh, you know, if you need to kill this guy, so what? Grace is gone. We find that still offered in Christ alone here. Was it legal to have Paul killed for a crime that they're accusing of? That would be legal in the Jewish community if he were guilty of such a crime that they accused him of. Now, again, you've got the Roman cohorts to, 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 to contend with, but technically that would be legal were it true. But these are assumptions. These are false accusations. And there was no trial. They're just happy to kill him. But yet, you know, keep ceremonial etiquette. Don't kill him inside the grounds. So Paul had said that the law was not for the Gentile. And thus the law was not perfect revelation of that which brought salvation. Now that is true. Paul has said, do not impose these ceremonial laws on the Gentiles. That's true. And he also said these ceremonial laws are not that which brings salvation. They point to the one who brings salvation. That's all that Paul has done. If, if that were an accusation, he's guilty. Guilty as charged. That's all he's done. That's all he's ever done. And he's very gracious to both entities. Very gracious. He said that Jesus realized all that the temple shadowed. That's all Paul has ever preached. That's all he ever will preach till we see him die. So his death is recorded in Scripture. All you're going to find all the way through Paul, the Apostle Paul's ministry, is that reality. That what is preached or, or, or what the temple shadows is revealed in Christ alone. Jesus is, realized, is a realization of all the temple shadows. That's Paul's message concerning the ceremonial law. And it's never wavered. And he's after both groups here with all his heart to see them come to Christ. And now Rome, in God's sovereign plan and for Paul's good, just does not like frenzied mobs, do they? Rome's not good with frenzied mobs. And they know how to squelch them. So enters the Roman commander. And they seize Paul. They put him in chains. And Claudius Lysias, by the way, is the commander of that time. And uh, he was known to be an excellent commander. But he's an unconscious instrument here. Rome intervenes. In verse 33, they're reminded again 
that he's bound, he's chained, he's chained to two Roman guards, and he's taken to the fort, Fort Antonia. So that sits right atop Jerusalem there. And it was kind of always there because where Jerusalem was famous with kind of volatility, right? You know, that the, you know if something stirs up amongst the, the Jewish community, usually it's right there in Jerusalem. And so the Romans had Fort Antonio, Antonia uh, built right there just for this very kind of thing. So it could be right on the scene. And so he's going to take Paul uh, there and kind of get him away from the crowd, kind of rescue him from the crowd and uh, uh, pull him away from the mob violence. So actually, Rome becomes a shield for Paul, if you will. Uh, of course, you know, some things transpire later. But at this moment, Rome becomes a shield for Paul and really shields Christianity from Jewish assault. So if you see kind of the, the two entities playing out here, represented by Paul and that Jewish contingency kind of stirred up by Judaizers primarily. You see now Rome intervening by a sovereign God and sort of, sort of shielding the reality of Christianity. For Paul's time is not yet done. And so God uses the Romans to shield Paul off there. And this assault on justice. So Rome's often tainted, but it's better than mob violence, right? So God uses Rome. Rome shelters and Jerusalem uh, shelters from Jerusalem's attempt at persecution. And again, both of them blindly fulfilled God's purpose. It's just glorious to see God's work in this way in space and time. But they, they keep shouting there in verse 36, away with him, away with him. They want him dead. In other words, kill him. Okay, if, if you're not going to let us tear him limb to limb, then you need to execute him. Kill him. They're in a frenzy. They desire him to be led away to death. And then something interesting happens in verse 37. So Paul there was about to be brought into the barracks, and he said to the commander, uh, look, they're, they're already, they're still, they made their last little tempting. So he's taking, they're taking him literally up the stairs and having to carry him to keep the mob from grabbing him and tearing him away from them to kill him. So you have this, this, these Roman soldiers sort of carrying Paul and surrounding him to keep the frenzied mob off of him. So they finally, they can't get the, they can't get their hands on him to kill him. And so they scream, well, you do it. You kill him. So there's this latch this effort. And then as he's being brought into the barracks, he says to the commander there in verse 37, may I say something to you? And then Lysias is surprised there and asks Paul back. He says, oh, so you, you speak Greek. So he's surprised. He thinks he's just kind of, you know, actually he thought he was uh, sort of a bandit hoodlum from uh, Egypt there that, that had stirred up trouble before, known as the assassins. And so he's a little surprised at, at Paul's, um, that Paul's obviously a learned man. And so he catches him off guard a little bit there. And I believe that's what prompts him to go ahead and show some graciousness to Paul here. And so verse 38, he goes on and he says there, you know, so you're not, you're not the Egyptian that some time ago stirred up the revolt here. Now, that's not you. Uh, you're not one of the, uh, of the assassins that was carried out of the wilderness. No, that's not Paul. But the 39, Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you to allow me to speak to the people. Now, in that sentence, Paul basically tells Lysias there, look, you know, I'm a citizen, I have rights. So that, that clues him in. You need to protect me. But 
I would like to speak. Now, he didn't say, can I go away with you, Commander, and may we uh, have a little conversation so I can tell you about the false accusations that have been, uh, that have been charged against me and how I was almost uh, uh, unjustly and criminally taken by mob violence and killed in the street. And what you as commander need to do to squelch this and put this away and how you need to make an example of these people. No such thing enters Paul's mind. I've had in confession here some really uh, unchristian thoughts about political leaders in another country that's holding my wife and children and probably doing so legally by every right in pretense. It's all good. Excellent. So maybe that, that process may be in work right now. So there's an answer to prayer right there. <laughs> I've had that personally. Paul never goes there, y'all. I want you to see it. He never goes there. He asked, last year, could I just have a word with him? Will you allow me to speak to these folks who have just tried to tear him limb to limb? And we're going to get to hear that, Lord willing, on next time. But I want you to see the heart here. No matter what comes his way, he never allows the circumstances to deter him. Paul is fixed on the gospel. He's squared away and centered up on the gospel. No matter what has just transpired, Paul doesn't hold it against him. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get bitter. He doesn't get confused. He doesn't get flustered. He doesn't doesn't become doubtful. He just doggedly stays on track and stays with the gospel. He intends to communicate to God. Now, here's a guy. You got to love this. We're gonna let me just leave you with this by application here. And my application to you is simple: for this, be like Paul. He never waves. He doesn't flinch. I mean, the man was about to be torn limb to limb, and in a moment, God rescues him out. And in a moment, he doesn't even take a breath. He doesn't have. To, he doesn't even take time to calm down and say, "Man." God, thank you for saving me. That was a close one. I was at the point of death. He doesn't even have any me time. He immediately turns around and says, can I share the gospel with them? Would you, Commander, allow me a moment to tell them where they're wrong about Christ? That's it. That's it right there. That's it. What we see right here in Paul is what we long for and what we pray for to be true in us. Amen. That's it right there. Just complete your course. He has no concern for what just happened that moment. Man, I'm taking weeks to read. That's vacay time for me. Me time, downtime. He's right back at it. As soon as he got to come up for air, he's back on him with the gospel. No, you don't see, you don't understand why you just about killed me. I can fix that. I can tell you the truth and fix why you just about killed me for no good reason. You need Christ. And I would love to tell you about Christ. That's the heart. Right there is the heart of an apostle set free. Now, I borrowed that from a lovely commentary from F.S. Bruce. Apostle Paul, the apostle set free. And that's exactly what he was. He's free here. Don't let the ceremonial, ceremonial law bind you in this text to the freedom of Paul. See the freedom of Paul. He is free. 
And with that freedom, he is doggedly determined to carry the gospel to all that he can until Paul, until God removes him from this earth. May that be true of us. Complete your course. God is your rock and high tower. If that is true, don't let the circumstances dictate to you. Complete your course. We will not be moved. Don't flinch. Don't flinch. Don't let the evils of this world by sinful men and women directed towards you change your course of what God has called you to do. Don't let your emotions be dictated to by the circumstance. Give your emotions over to your God that he might use you. He's your rock. He's your high tower. You will not be moved in Christ. Have a testimony of a calm demeanor. God help me. Have a testimony of a calm demeanor that testifies the character of, of one who is in service to Christ. Have that character in your life. Have the character of Paul here in your life. Be- take this text and beg God to put this kind of character in your life. Oh, that I could have this. A demeanor. A demeanor. That is hungry to see Christ exalted and the gospel go forth. It's a putting away of self. Paul's ready to die. That's what you've got to understand here. It's a putting away of self. When self gets put into this circumstance, the demeanor of a Christ follower does not come out. What you see here is a sovereign work of God on an obedient follower of Christ. This is not a natural response. This is a supernatural response. Oh, that may be true of us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this text. This is a bulky last section here of chapter 21. May you take it and minister to our hearts. May we see the sovereignty of your great name expressed in your servant, Paul, and may it do us good. Help us to deny self that we may walk in the bonds of peace and in the power of Christ and that our lives might be lived out to your glory and that we might have witness in all circumstances. God help us to pray in the name of Christ. Amen.